Book Second of the Joyful Wisdom, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. Book Second, Part Two. Eighty-seven. The Conceit of the Artists. I think artists often do not know what they can do best, because they are too conceited and have set their minds on something loftier than those little plants appear to be, which can grow up to perfection on their soil, fresh, rare, and beautiful. The final value of their own garden and vineyard is superciliously underestimated by them, and their love and their insight are not of the same quality. Here is a musician who more than anything else has a genius for discovering the tones peculiar to suffering, oppressed, tortured souls, and can endow even dumb animals with speech. No one equals him in the colours of the late autumn, in the indescribable touching happiness of a last, a final, an all-too-short enjoyment. He knows a chord for those secret and weird midnights of the soul when cause and effect seem out of joint, and when every instant something may originate quote, out of nothing. Unquote. He draws his resources best of all out of the lower depths of human happiness, and, so to speak, out of its drained goblet, where the bitterest and most nauseous drops have ultimately for good or for ill, commingled with the sweetest. He knows the weary shuffling along of the soul which can no longer leap or fly, yea, not even walk. He has the shy glance of concealed pain, of understanding without comfort, of leave-taking without avowal. Yea, as the Orpheus of all secret misery, he is greater than any one. And, in fact, much has been added to art by him which was hitherto inexpressible and not even thought worthy of art and which was only to be scared away by words and not grasped many small and quite microscopic features of the soul yes he is the master of miniature but he does not wish to be so his character is more in love with large walls and daring frescoes. He fails to see that his spirit has a different taste and inclination, and prefers to sit quietly in the corners of ruined houses. Concealed in this way, concealed even from himself, he there paints his proper masterpieces, all of which are very short, often only one bar in length. There only does he become quite good, great, and perfect, perhaps, there only. But he does not know it. He is too conceited to know it. 88. Earnestness for the Truth Earnestness for the Truth. What different things men understand by these words! Just the same opinions and modes of demonstration and testing which a thinker regards as a frivolity in himself, to which he has succumbed with shame at one time or another, just the same opinions may give to an artist who comes in contact with them and accepts them temporarily, the consciousness that the profoundest earnestness for the truth has now taken hold of him. 
and that it is worthy of admiration that, although an artist, he at the same time exhibits the most ardent desire for the antithesis of the apparent. It is thus possible that a person may, just by his pathos of earnestness, betray how superficially and sparingly his intellect has hitherto operated in the domain of knowledge. And is not everything that we consider important our betrayer? It shows where our motives lie, and where our motives are altogether lacking. Eighty-nine. Now and formally. Of what consequence is all our art in artistic products, if that higher art, the art of the festival, be lost by us? Formerly all artistic products were exhibited on the great festival path of humanity as tokens of remembrance and monuments of high and happy moments. One now seeks to allure the exhausted and sickly from the great suffering path of humanity for a wanton moment by means of works of art. One furnishes them with a little ecstasy and insanity. 90. Lights and Shades Books and writings are different with different thinkers. One writer has collected together in his book all the rays of light which he could quickly plunder and carry home from an illuminating experience, while another gives only the shadows and the grey and black replicas of that which on the previous day had towered up in his soul. 91. Precaution Alferi, as is well known, told a great many falsehoods when he narrated the history of his life to his astonished contemporaries. He told falsehoods owing to the despotism towards himself, which he exhibited, for example, in the way in which he created his own language and tyrannized himself into a poet. He finally found a rigid form of sublimity into which he forced his life and his memory. He must have suffered much in the process. I would also give no credit to a history of Plato's life written by himself, as little as to Rousseau's, or as to the Vita Nova of Dante. 92. Prose and Poetry Let it be observed that the great masters of prose have almost always been poets as well, whether openly or only in secret and from the quote, closet, unquote. and in truth one only writes good prose in view of poetry, for prose is an uninterrupted, polite warfare with poetry. All its charm consists in the fact that poetry is constantly avoided and contradicted. Every abstraction wants to have a jibe at poetry and wishes to be uttered with a mocking voice. All dryness and coolness is meant to bring the amiable goddess into an amiable despair. There are often approximations and reconciliations for the moment, and then a sudden recoil and a burst of laughter. The curtain is often drawn up and dazzling light let in just while the goddess is enjoying her twilights and dull colours, 
the word is taken out of her mouth and chanted to a melody while she holds her fine hands before her delicate little ears and so there are a thousand enjoyments of the warfare the defeats included of which the unpoetic the so-called prose men know nothing at all and consequently write and speak only bad prose Warfare is the father of all good things. It is also the father of good prose. There have been four very singular and truly poetic men in this century who have arrived at mastership in prose, for which otherwise this century is not suited, owing to the lack of poetry as we have indicated. Not to take Goethe into account, for he is reasonably claimed by the century that produced him. I look only on Giacomo Lepardi, Prosper Merimi, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Walter Savage Landor, the author of Imaginary Conversations, as worthy to be called Masters of Prose. 93. But why, then, do you write? A. I do not belong to those who think with the wet pen in hand, and still less to those who yield themselves entirely to their passion before the open ink bottle, sitting on their chair and staring at the paper. I am always vexed and abashed by writing. Writing is a necessity for me. Even to speak of it in simile is disagreeable. B. But why then do you write? A. Well, my dear sir, I tell you in confidence, I have hitherto found no other means of getting rid of my thoughts. B. And why do you wish to get rid of them? A. Why should I wish? Do I really wish? I must. B. Enough, enough. 94. Growth After Death those few daring words about moral matters which Fontanelli threw into his immortal Dialogues of the Dead were so regarded by his age as paradoxes and amusements of a not unscrupulous wit. Even the highest judges of taste and intellect saw nothing more in them. Indeed, Fontanelli himself perhaps saw nothing more. Then something incredible takes place. These thoughts become truths. Science proves them. The game becomes serious. And we read those dialogues with a feeling different from that which Voltaire and Helvetius read them. And we voluntarily raise their originator into another and much higher class of intellects than they did. Rightly? Wrongly? 95. Chamfort that such a judge of men and of the multitude as chamfort should side with the multitude instead of standing apart in philosophical resignation and defence i am at a loss to explain except as follows there was an instinct in him stronger than his wisdom and it never had been gratified the hatred against all noblesse of blood Perhaps his mother's old and only too explicable hatred, which was consecrated in him by love of her, 
and instinct of revenge from his boyhood, which waited for the hour to avenge his mother. But then the course of his life, his genius, and alas, most of all, perhaps, the paternal blood in his veins, had seduced him to rank and consider himself equal to the noblesse for many, many years. In the end, however, he could not endure the sight of himself, the, quote, old man, unquote, under the old regime any longer. He got into a violent, penitential passion, and, in this state, he put on the raiment of the populace in his special kind of hair shirt. His bad conscience was the neglect of revenge. If Chamfort had then been a little more of the philosopher, the revolution would not have had its tragic wit and its sharpest sting. It would have been regarded as a much more stupid affair and would have had no such seductive influence on men's minds. But Chamfort's hatred and revenge educated an entire generation, and the most illustrious men passed through his school. Let us consider that Mirabeau looked up to Chamfort as his higher and older self, from whom he expected, paren, and endured, en paren, impulses, warnings, and condemnations. Mirabeau, who as a man belongs to an entirely different order of greatness, as the foremost among statesmen geniuses of yesterday and today. Strange that in spite of such a friend and advocate, we possess Mirabeau's letters to Chamfort. This wittiest of all moralists had remained unfamiliar to the French, quite the same as Sendhal, who has perhaps had the most penetrating eyes and ears of any Frenchman of this century. Is it because the latter had really too much of the German and English in his nature for the Parisians to endure him? While Chamfort, a man of ample knowledge of the profundities and secret motives of the soul, gloomy, suffering, ardent, a thinker who found laughter necessary as a remedy of life, and who almost gave himself up as lost every day that he had not laughed, seems much more like an Italian, and related by blood to Dante and Leopardi, than like a Frenchman. One knows Chamfort's last words. Ah, mon ami, he said to says, Je me veille enfant de ce monde, où les fins qui le queer se brise ou se bronze. These were certainly not the words of a dying Frenchman. 96. Two Orators Of these two orators, the one arrives at a full understanding of his case only when he yields himself to emotion. It is only this that pumps sufficient blood and heat into his brain to compel his high intellectuality to reveal itself. The other attempts, indeed, now and then to do the same, to state his case sonorously, vehemently, and spiritedly with the aid of emotion, but usually with bad success. He then very soon speaks obscurely and confusedly, he exaggerates, makes omissions, and excites suspicion of the justice of his case. Indeed, he himself feels this suspicion, and the sudden changes into the coldest and most repulsive tones, paren, which raise a doubt in the hearer as to his passionateness being genuine, and paren.
are thereby explicable. With him, emotion always drowns the spirit, perhaps because it is stronger than the former. But he is at the height of his power when he resists the impetuous storm of his feeling, and, as it were, scorns it. It is then only that his spirit emerges fully from its concealment, a spirit logical, mocking, and playful, but nevertheless awe-inspiring. 97. The Loquacity of Authors There is a loquacity of anger, frequent in Luther, also in Schopenhauer, a loquacity which comes from too great a store of conceptual formulae, as in Kant, a loquacity which comes from delight in ever new modifications of the same idea, one finds it in Montaigne, a loquacity of malicious natures. Whoever reads writings of our period will recollect two authors in this connection a loquacity which comes from the delight in fine words and forms of speech, by no means rare in Goethe's prose, a loquacity which comes from pure satisfaction in noise and confusion of feelings, for example, in Carlyle. 98. In honour of Shakespeare the best thing I could say in honour of Shakespeare, the man, is that he believed in Brutus, and cast not a shadow of suspicion on the kind of virtue which Brutus represents. It is to him that Shakespeare consecrated his best tragedy. It is at present still called by a wrong name. To him, and to the most terrible essence of lofty morality, independence of soul. That is the question at issue. No sacrifice can be too great there. One must be able to sacrifice to it even one's dearest friend, although he be also the grandest of men, the ornament of the world, the genius without peer. If one really loves freedom as the freedom of great souls, and if this freedom be threatened by him, it is thus that Shakespeare must have felt. The elevation in which he places Caesar is the most exquisite honour he could confer upon Brutus. It is thus only that he lifts into vastness the inner problem of his hero, and similarly the strength of soul which could cut this knot. And was it actually political freedom that impelled the poet to sympathy with Brutus, and made him the accomplice of Brutus? Or was political freedom merely a symbol for something inexpressible? Do we perhaps stand before some sombre event or adventure of the poet's own soul, which has remained unknown, and of which he only cared to speak symbolically? What is all Hamlet melancholy in comparison with the melancholy of Brutus? And perhaps Shakespeare also knew this, as he knew the other by experience. Perhaps he also had his dark hour and his bad angel, just as Brutus had them. 
but whatever similarities and secret relationships of that kind there may have been, Shakespeare cast himself on the ground and felt unworthy and alien in the presence of the aspect and virtue of Brutus. He has inscribed the testimony thereof in the tragedy itself. He has twice brought in a poet in it and twice heaped upon him such an impatient and extreme contempt, that it sounds like a cry, like a cry of self-contempt. Brutus, even Brutus, loses patience when the poet appears, self-important, pathetic, and obtrusive, as poets usually are. Persons who seem to abound in the possibilities of greatness, even moral greatness, and nevertheless rarely attain even to ordinary uprightness in the philosophy of practice and of life. Quote, he may know the times, but I know his temper. Away with the jigging fool! End quote, shouts Brutus. We may translate this back into the soul of the poet that composed it. 99. The followers of Schopenhauer. What one sees at the contact of civilized peoples with barbarians, namely, that the lower civilization regularly accepts in the first place the vices, weaknesses, and excesses of the higher, then, from that point onwards, feels the influence of a charm, and finally, by means of the appropriated vices and weaknesses, also allow something of the valuable influence of the higher culture to leave in it. One can also see this close at hand, and without journeys to barbarian peoples, to be sure. Somewhat refined and spiritualized, and not so readily palpable. What are the German followers of Schopenhauer still accustomed to receive first of all from their master? Those who, when placed beside his superior culture, must deem themselves sufficiently barbarous to be first of all barbarously fascinated and seduced by him. Is it his hard matter-of-fact sense, his inclination to clearness and rationality, which often makes him appear so English and so unlike Germans? or the strength of his intellectual conscience, which endured a lifelong contradiction of quote, being unquote, and quote, willing, unquote, and compelled him to contradict himself constantly, even in his writings on almost every point? Or his purity in the matters relating to the church and the Christian God? for here he was too pure as no German philosopher had been hitherto, so that he lived and died, quote, as a Voltairian, end quote. Or his immortal doctrines of the intellectuality of intuition, the a priori of the law of causality, the instrumental nature of the intellect, and the non-freedom of the will. No, Nothing of this enchants, nor is felt as enchanting. But Schopenhauer's mystical embarrassments and shufflings in those passages where the matter-of-fact thinker allowed himself to be seduced and corrupted by the vain impulse to be the unraveller of the world's riddle, 
this undemonstrable doctrine of one will. Paren, quote, All causes are merely occasional causes of the phenomenon of the will at such time and at such a place. End quote. Quote, the will to live, whole and undivided, is present in every living being, even in the smallest, as perfectly as in the sum of all that was, is, and will be. End quote. End paren. His denial of the individual. Paren, quote, all lions are really only one lion. End quote. Quote, the plurality of individuals is an appearance. End quote. As also development is only an appearance. He calls the opinion of Lamarck quote, an ingenious, absurd error. End quote. End paren. His fantasy about genius. Paren, quote, in ascetic contemplation, the individual is no longer an individual, but a pure, willless, painless, timeless subject of knowledge. Quote. Quote, the subject, in that it entirely merges in the contemplated object, has become this object itself. End quote. End paren. His nonsense about sympathy about the outburst of the Principum Individualationis, thus rendered possible, as the source of all morality, including also such assertions as, quote, dying is really the design of existence, end quote. The, quote, the possibility should not be absolutely denied that the magical effect could proceed from a person already dead, end quote. These, and similar extravagances and vices of the philosopher, are always first accepted and made articles of faith, for vices and extravagances are always easier to imitate, and do not require a long preliminary practice. But let us speak of the most celebrated of the living Schopenhauerians, Richard Wagner. It has happened to him as it has already happened to many an artist, that he made a mistake in the interpretation of the characters he created, and misunderstood the unexpressed philosophy of the art peculiarly his own. Richard Wagner allowed himself to be misled by Hegel's influence till the middle of his life, and did the same again when he read Schopenhauer's doctrine between the lines of his characters and began to express himself with such terms as quote, will, unquote, quote, genius, unquote, and quote, sympathy. Unquote. Nevertheless, it will remain true that nothing is more counter to Schopenhauer's spirit than the essentially Wagnerian element in Wagner's heroes. I mean, the innocence of the supremest selfishness, the belief in strong passion as a good in itself, in a word, the Siegfried trait in the countenances of his heroes. Quote, All that still smacks more of Spinoza than of me, end quote. Schopenhauer probably would have said. Whatever good reasons, therefore, Wagner might have had to be on the outlook for other philosophers than Schopenhauer, 
the enchantment to which he succumbed in respect of this thinker not only made him blind towards all other philosophers, but even towards science itself. His entire art is more and more inclined to become the counterpart and complement of the Schopenhauerian philosophy and it always renounces more emphatically the higher ambition to become the counterpart and complement of human knowledge and science. And not only is he allured thereto by the whole mystic pomp of this philosophy, paren, which would also have allured a Cagliostrio, and paren. The peculiar airs and emotions of the philosopher have all along been seducing him as well. For example, Wagner's indignation about the corruption of the German language is Schopenhauerian. And if one should commend his imitation in this respect, it is nevertheless not to be denied that Wagner's style itself suffers in no small degree from all the tumours and turgidities, the sight of which made Schopenhauer so furious, and that, in respect to the German writing Wagnerians. Wagneromania is beginning to be as dangerous as only some kinds of Hegliomania have been. Schopenhauerian is Wagner's hatred of the Jews, to whom he is unable to do justice, even in their greatest exploit. Are not the Jews the inventors of Christianity? The attempt of Wagner to construe Christianity as a seed blown away from Buddhism, and his endeavour to initiate a Buddhistic era in Europe, under a temporary approximation to Catholic Christian formulas and sentiments, are both Schopenhauerian. Wagner's preaching in favour of pity in dealing with animals is Schopenhauerian. Schopenhauer's predecessor here, as is well known, was Voltaire, who already perhaps, like his successors, knew how to disguise his hatred of certain men and things as pity towards animals. At least Wagner's hatred of science, which manifests itself in his preaching, has certainly not been inspired by the spirit of charitableness and kindness, nor by the spirit at all, as is sufficiently obvious. Finally, it is of little importance what the philosophy of an artist is, provided it is only a supplementary philosophy and does not do any injury to his art itself. We cannot be sufficiently on our guard against taking a dislike to an artist on account of an occasional, perhaps very unfortunate and presumptuous masquerade. Let us not forget that the dear artists are all of them something of actors, and must be so. It would be difficult for them to hold out in the long run without stage playing. Let us be loyal to Wagner in that which is true and original in him, and especially in this point, that we, his disciples, remain loyal to ourselves in that which is true and original in us. Let us allow him his intellectual humours and spasms. Let us in fairness rather consider what strange nutriments and necessaries an art like his is entitled to, in order to be able to live and grow. It is of no account that he is often wrong as a thinker. 
justice and patience are not his affair. It is sufficient that his life is right in his own eyes, and maintains its right. The life which calls to each of us, quote, Be a man, and do not follow me, but thyself, thyself, end quote. Our life also ought to maintain its right in our own eyes. We also are to grow and blossom out of ourselves, free and fearless, in innocent selfishness. And so, on the contemplation of such a man, these thoughts still ring in my ears today as formerly, quote, that passion is better than stoicism or hypocrisy, that straightforwardness, even in evil, is better than losing oneself in trying to observe traditional morality, that the free man is just as able to be good as evil, but that the unemancipated man is a disgrace to nature, and has no share in heavenly or earthly bliss. Finally, that all who wish to be free must become so through themselves, and that freedom falls to nobody's lot as a gift from heaven. Paren, Richard Wagner in Beirut, Volume 1 of this translation, pages 199 to 200. Learning to do homage. One must learn the art of homage, as well as the art of contempt. Whoever goes into new paths, and has led many persons therein, discovers with astonishment how awkward and incompetent all of them are in the expression of their gratitude, and indeed how rarely gratitude is able even to express itself. It is always as if something comes into people's throats when their gratitude wants to speak, so that it only hums and hoars, and becomes silent again. The way in which a thinker succeeds in tracing the effect of his thoughts and their transforming and convulsing power is almost a comedy. It sometimes seems as if those who have been operated upon felt profoundly injured thereby, and could only assert their independence, which they suspect to be threatened by all kinds of improprieties. It needs whole generations in order merely to devise a courteous convention of gratefulness. It is only very late that the period arrives when something of spirit and genius enters into gratitude. Then there is usually someone who is the great receiver of thanks, not only for the good he himself has done, but mostly for that which has been gradually accumulated by his predecessors as a treasure of what is highest and best. 101. Voltaire Wherever there has been a court, it has furnished the standard of good speaking, and with this also the standard of style for writers. The court language, however, is the language of the courtier who has no profession, and who even in conversations on scientific subjects avoids all convenient technical expressions, because they smack of the profession, on that account the technical expression, 
and everything betrays the specialist is a blemish of style in countries which have a court culture at present when all courts have become caricatures of past and present times one is astonished to find even voltaire unspeakably reserved and scrupulous on this point Paren, for example in his judgments concerning such stylists as Fontanelli and Montesquieu, end paren. We are now, all of us, emancipated from court taste, while Voltaire was its perfecter. 102. A word for philologists. It is thought that there are books so valuable and royal, that whole generations of scholars are well employed when through their efforts these books are kept genuine and intelligible. To confirm this belief again and again is the purpose of philology. It presupposes that the rare man are not lacking, paren, although they may not be visible, end paren, who actually knows how to use such valuable books those men perhaps who write such books themselves or could write them i mean to say that philologists presuppose a noble belief that for the benefit of some few who are always quote, to come unquote, and are not there a very great amount of painful and even dirty labor has to be done beforehand it is all labor in usum delphinorum 103. German Music German music, more than any other, has now become European music, because the changes which Europe experienced through the revolution have therein alone found expression. It is only German music that knows how to express the agitation of popular masses, the tremendous artificial uproar, which does not even need to be very noisy, while Italian opera, for example, knows only the choruses of domestics or soldiers, but not, quote, the people, unquote. There is the additional fact that in all German music, a profound bourgeois jealousy of the noblesse can be traced, especially a jealousy of esprit and elegance, as the expressions of a courtly, chivalrous, ancient and self-confident society. It is not music like that of Goethe's musician at the gate, which was pleasing also, quote, in the hall, unquote, and to the king as well. It is not here said, quote, the knights looked on with martial air, with bashful eyes of the ladies, unquote. Even the graces are not allowed in German music without a touch of remorse. It is only with pleasantness, the country sister of the graces, that the German begins to feel morally at ease. And from this point up, to his enthusiastic, learned, and often gruff, quote, sublimity, unquote, paren, the Beethoven-like sublimity, end paren. He feels more and more so. If we want to imagine the man of this music, well, let us imagine Beethoven, as he appeared beside Goethe, say, at their meeting at Teplitz, 
as semi-barbarian besides culture, as the masses beside the nobility, as the good-natured man besides the good, and more than, quote, good, unquote, man, as the visionary beside the artist, as the man needing comfort beside the comforted, as the man given to exaggeration and distrust beside the man of reason, as the crank and self-tormentor, as the foolish, enraptured, blessedly unfortunate, sincerely immoderate man, as the pretentious and awkward man, and altogether as the, quote, untamed man, unquote. It was thus that Goethe conceived and characterized him, Goethe, the exceptional German, for whom a music of equal rank has not yet been found. Finally, let us consider whether the present continually extending contempt of melody and the stunting of the sense of melody among Germans shall not be understood as a democratic impropriety and an after-effect of the revolution. For melody has such an obvious delight in conformity to law, and such an aversion of everything evolving, unformed, and arbitrary, that it sounds like a note out of the ancient European regime, and as a seduction and reduction back to it. 104. The Tone of the German Language we know whence the German originated, which for several centuries has been the universal literary language of Germany. The Germans, with their reverence for everything that came from the court, intentionally took the chancery style as their pattern in all that they had to write, especially their letters, records, wills, etc. To write in the chancery style, that was to write in court and government style. That was regarded as something select, compared with the language of the city in which a person lived. People gradually drew this inference, and spoke also as they wrote. They thus became still more select in the forms of their words, in their choice of their terms and modes of expression, and finally also in their tones. They affected a court tone when they spoke, and the affectation at last became natural. Perhaps nothing quite similar has ever happened elsewhere. The predominance of the literary style over the talk, and the formality and affectation of an entire people, became the basis of a common and no longer dialectical language. I believe that the sound of the German language in the Middle Ages, especially after the Middle Ages, was extremely rustic, vulgar, it has ennobled itself somewhat during the last centuries, principally because it found necessary to imitate so many French, Italian and Spanish sounds, and particularly on the part of the German, Paren and Austrian, and Paren, nobility, who could not at all content themselves with their mother tongue. But notwithstanding this practice, German must have sounded intolerably vulgar to Montaigne, and even to Racine, even at present. In the mouths of travellers among the Italian populace, it still sounds very coarse, sylvan, and hoarse, as if it had originated in smoky rooms and outlandish districts. 
now i notice that at present a similar striving after selectness of tone is spreading among the former admirers of the chancery style and that the germans are beginning to accommodate themselves to a particular quote, witchery of sound unquote, which might in the long run become an actual danger to the german language for one may seek in vain for more execrable sounds in europe something mocking cold indifferent and careless in the voice that is what at present sounds quote, noble unquote, to the germans and i hear the approval of this nobleness in the voices of young officials teachers women and tradespeople indeed even the little girls already imitate this german of the officers for the officers and in fact the prussian officer is the inventor of these tones this same officer who as soldier and professional man possesses that admirable tact for modesty which the germans as the whole might well imitate paren german professors and musicians included in paren but as soon as he speaks and moves he is the most immodest and inelegant figure in old europe no doubt unconsciously to himself and unconsciously also to the good germans who gaze at him as the man of the foremost and most select society and willingly let him quote, give them his tone unquote. and indeed he gives it to them in the first place it is the sergeant-majors and non-commissioned officers that imitate his tone and coarsen it one should note the roars of command with which the german sitters are absolutely surrounded at present when there is drilling at all the gates what presumption furious imperiousness and mocking coldness speaks in this uproar could the germans actually be a musical people it is certain that the germans martialize themselves at present in their tone of their language it is probable that being exercised to speak martially they will finally write martially also for habituation to definite tones extends deeply into the character people soon have the words and modes of expression and finally also the thoughts which just suit these tones perhaps they already write in the officer's style perhaps i only read too little of what is at present written in germany to know this but one thing i know all the surer the german public declarations which also reach places abroad are not inspired by german music but just by that new tone of tasteless arrogance almost in every speech of the foremost german statesman and even when he makes himself heard through his imperial mouthpiece there is an accent which the ear of a foreigner repudiates with aversion but the germans endure it they endure themselves one hundred and five the germans as artists when once a german actually experiences passion paren, and not only as usual the mere inclination to it end paren he then behaves just as he must do in passion and does not think further of his behaviour the truth is however 
that he then behaves very awkwardly and uglily, and as if destitute of rhythm and melody, so that onlookers are pained or moved thereby, but nothing more, unless he elevates himself to the sublimity and enrapturedness of which certain passions are capable. Then even the German becomes beautiful, the perception of the height at which beauty begins to shed its charm even over Germans, raises German artists to the height, to the supreme height, and to the extravagances of passion. They have an actual profound longing, therefore, to get beyond, or at least to look beyond the ugliness and awkwardness, into a better, easier, more southern, more sunny world. And thus their convulsions are often merely indications that they would like to dance. These poor bears, in whom hidden nymphs and satyrs, and sometimes still even higher divinities, carry on their game. One hundred and six. Music as advocate. I have a longing for a master of the musical art, said an innovator to his disciple, that he may learn from me my ideas and speak them more widely in his language. I shall thus be better able to reach men's ears and hearts, for by means of tones one can seduce men to every error and every truth who can refute a tone. You would therefore like to be regarded as irrefutable? said his disciple. The innovator answered, I should like the germ to become a tree. In order that a doctrine may become a tree, it must be believed in for a considerable period. In order that it may be believed in, it must be regarded as irrefutable. Storms and doubts and worms and wickedness are necessary to the tree, that it may manifest its species and the strength of its germ. Let it perish if it is not strong enough. But a germ is always merely annihilated, not refuted. When he had said this, his disciple called out impertiously, But I believe in your cause, and regard it as so strong, that I will say everything against it, everything that I still have in my heart. The innovator laughed to himself, and threatened his disciple with his finger. That kind of discipleship, he said then, is the best, but it is dangerous, and not every kind of doctrine can stand it. 107. Our Ultimate Gratitude to Art If we had not approved of the arts and invented this sort of cult of the untrue, the insight into the general untruth and falsity of things now given us by science, an insight into delusion and error as conditions of intelligent and sentient existence, would be quite unendurable. Honesty would have disgust and suicide in its train. Now, however, our honesty has a counterpoise which helps us to escape such consequences, namely art as goodwill to illusion. 
We do not always restrain our eyes from rounding off and perfecting in imagination. And then it is no longer the eternal imperfection that we carry over the river of becoming. For we think we carry a goddess. We are proud and artless in rendering the service. As an ascetic phenomenon, existence is still endurable to us. And by art, eye and hand and above all, the good conscience are given to us to be able to make such a phenomenon out of ourselves. We must rest from ourselves occasionally by contemplating and looking down upon ourselves and by laughing and weeping over ourselves from an artistic remoteness. We must discover the hero and likewise the fool that is hidden in our passion for knowledge. We must now and then be joyful in our folly, that we may continue to be joyful in our wisdom. And just because we are heavy and serious men in our ultimate depth, and are rather weights than men, there is nothing that does us so much good as the fool's cap and bells. We need them in presence of ourselves, we need all arrogant, soaring, dancing, mocking, childish and blessed art, in order not to lose the free dominion over things, which are ideal demands of us. It would be backsliding for us, with our susceptible integrity, to lapse entirely into morality, and actually become virtuous monsters and scarecrows, on account of the over-strict requirements which we here lay down for ourselves. We ought to be able to stand above morality, and not only stand with the painful stiffness of one who every moment fears to slip and fall, but we should also be able to soar and play above it. How could we dispense with art for that purpose? How could we dispense with a fool? And as long as you are still ashamed of yourselves in any way, you still do not belong to us. End of book two.